Well, you are probably aware that today is what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. And without question, the message of Palm Sunday is the message of the King. Indeed, the Bible again and again makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is a King. In the Old Testament, it prophesied over and over again that he would be a king. For example, Psalm 2.6, God the Father spoke of Jesus in these words, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, that famous prophecy we read, And the government will be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. These are just two of many, many, many Old Testament passages declaring that Jesus was to be a king. And in the New Testament, Matthew begins chapter 1 by giving us the genealogy of Jesus in order to show that he is in the line of King David, and thus he has a right to reign as king of Israel. And since we just finished a uh, study of the book of Ruth, I think it's important for us to note that the genealogy of Matthew shows that Jesus is a direct descendant of Boaz and Ruth through King David. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we find this genealogy. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and it puts Ruth's name in there, I think, for emphasis. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. That genealogy is taken directly from the last two verses of the book of Ruth in chapter 4. We find this portion of a genealogy there. It says, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And all of the events of the book of Ruth have shown us how Ruth, a Moabite Gentile, came to be part of the direct lineage of King Jesus. Boaz and Ruth were the great-grandparents of, of King David. And her decision to leave the pagan Moabite gods and follow the true God were expressed in her famous words spoken to Naomi when she said, Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And I believe God rewarded her by making her an ancestor uh, of Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 2, we read of the Gentile wise men who came asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They recognized that a king of the royal line of David had been born. Clearly, Jesus is presented as a king. John the Baptist proclaimed, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Jesus came and announced, The kingdom is at hand. Why? Why was the kingdom at hand? Because the king was present. The kingdom is embodied in the king. But how was King Jesus received? Was he received as a king should be received? The fact is, the only crown that they gave him was a crown of thorns. And the only throne that he was lifted up on was the cruel cross of Calvary. Indeed, Palm Sunday is bittersweet for us. Because, because even as we read of the great celebration, we know that Friday is coming. The cross is coming. And we know that many in the crowd will, within a few short days, exchange words of praise for words of death. Shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, will turn to shouts of crucify him, crucify him. And the question we, we must face is this. 
Why did they treat the king in this manner? Why? The answer? Because there was a great misunderstanding of the purpose and plan of King Jesus. Nowhere was this more evident than on that day 2,000 years ago when Jesus rode into Jerusalem in what we commonly know as the triumphal entry. It was a day of high drama, of great enthusiasm and euphoria, but it was also a day of great confusion and misunderstanding. Actually, this is one of the few events of Jesus' life that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. Obviously, it is a very significant day in God's sight. Therefore, I believe it's important that we understand the significance of the events that day. So this morning, we want to look in detail at the Apostle John's account of that first Palm Sunday. And as we think about this Passion Week, and we look forward to remembering the death of Christ on Friday and his resurrection next Sunday, it is fitting that we get into the flow of these wonderful redemptive events by examining his entry into Jerusalem. And I would encourage you to turn in your Bible to John's account that we find in John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. Now, most of the verses will be on the screen, but I still think it would be good for you to have your Bible open to John chapter 12 and have it there in front of you. And this morning, we're going to notice four matters concerning the king. And the first thing that we want to notice is the praise of the king. The praise of the king. Look at verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now try to envision with me, it's somewhat difficult, but try to imagine in your mind the scene on that first Palm Sunday in Jerusalem. Very often I feel we fail to grasp the magnitude of this event. Keep in mind, it is the day after a wonderful feast at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. Many guests had been there celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. If you look back at verse 1 of this chapter, we read, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And during that supper, it tells us that Mary had poured out that expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiped them with her hair as a demonstration of love and devotion. Verse 3, it tells us that Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But as the next day dawns, the news of Jesus and the incredible resurrection of Lazarus had spread from the town of Bethany to Jerusalem, which was just a couple of miles away. And so Jesus leaves Bethany and he approaches the Mount of Olives from which he would have an unforgettable view of the city of Jerusalem there below him. Luke 19 records that Jesus told two of his disciples to go into a small village where they would find a colt or baby donkey tied to a post. And he tells them to bring it to him so that he can write on it into the city. 
And from the moment he is seated on that donkey, he becomes the visible center of focus of a great multitude of people who surround him on the way. It appears that this tremendous throng came from two directions. One is coming out of the city of Jerusalem to meet him, and the other is coming with him from Bethany. Verse 12 tells us, notice, the next day the large crowd, it means vast, huge crowd, that had come to the feast. They were there for the Passover feast, coming in just a few days. And then in verse 17 it tells us alongside Jesus was the crowd that had been present when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and, and raised him from the dead. Now, it's important to notice, this wasn't just a matter of several hundred people lining the way into the city. In fact, the crowd is so large that in verse 19, it tells us the Pharisees said to one another, Look, the whole world is going after him. Most likely, the crowds lining the streets are in the hundreds of thousands. The excitement and enthusiasm becomes all-consuming as two large crowds flow together. Josephus, the renowned Jewish historian of that day, estimated that well over two million people would be involved in the great Passover feast in those days in Jerusalem. And so coming out of that rather small eastern gate of the city was a multitude coming down the slope from Jerusalem as the other group is coming from Bethany up the slope. And those two great crowds converged together like two colliding rivers. Enthusiasm is mounting, and Jesus is accepting it all as he is hailed as Messiah and King. This great mass of humanity surges around Jesus and shouts in unison, Hosanna! Hosanna! And if you've ever been in a great crowd, you know how mass hysteria can spread through the crowd. In Matthew 21, 8, we read the crowd was spreading their cloaks on the road. They were also cutting tree branches down from the palm tree and waving them and then throwing them at his feet, creating sort of a royal road, a path into the city. This waving of palm branches had become a national symbol that signaled the fervent hope that a messianic liberator was arriving on the scene. We could consider this really a first century of rolling out the red carpet. That's what they were doing. It was an absolutely incredible scene of great emotion and great expectation because the day the nation of Israel had anticipated for centuries apparently was finally at hand. They had long anticipated that a Messiah would come as a political king to overthrow their oppressor, Rome, and set the Jewish nation free. And remember, they were there to celebrate the Passover, which commemorated the deliverance of the nation of Israel from the bondage and oppression of Egypt. So how fitting would it be that God had apparently chosen to bring deliverance again for the nation of Israel at the very time of the Passover? And they knew, they knew Jesus had the power. There was no doubt about that. They had seen him do many miracles, including the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So they shout, it tells us, at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now, do it now, deliver us now. You're the king. We acknowledge you as king. Save us now. And they were also singing a portion of Psalm 118, one of the psalms sung at Passover season as a prayer that the salvation of God might be immediately realized. Notice they're, they're 
Actually, quoting from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, where we read, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And by applying this psalm to Jesus, they gave him the place of Messiahship, King of Israel. And they called upon him to reveal his power. However, in Luke 19, it tells us the Pharisees called on Jesus to rebuke his disciples. They said, tell them to be quiet, to stop this. And Jesus' reply was, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, if the creature will not acknowledge who I am, then the creation will. All history had pointed toward this spectacular event when the Messiah presented himself to the nation. And God desired that this fact be acknowledged. And most certainly, it was a matter of time until the trumpet would sound and the revolution would begin to throw off the yoke of the Roman oppression. Apparently, even the disciples were carried away in the emotion of the moment. Even though Jesus had been telling them all the way on their trip towards Jerusalem, he repeatedly told them he was going up to Jerusalem to die. And no doubt they were beginning to believe he had changed his mind. One writer put it this way, the disciples walked in the procession almost as in a dream, or if dazzled by a brilliant light all around, as if impelled by a necessity, and carried from event to event which came upon them in a succession of but partially understood surprises. What an absolutely incredible and describable event that first Palm Sunday was. As for a brief moment in time, King Jesus is given a portion of the praise that he alone deserves. But wait a moment. Wait just a moment. There appears to be some misunderstanding of what exactly is occurring in this event. This brings us to the second matter concerning the king, and that is the prophecy of the king. The prophecy of the king. In the midst of the mob hysteria, Jesus was quietly making a statement, but apparently nobody was getting the message. Look at verse 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And now you have a partial quote from Zechariah the prophet, 9 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He did, Jesus did not come riding on a white stallion. He did not come into the city as a king would normally come on a white stallion or on a chariot pulled by four white chargers. One Bible commentator put it this way. The crowds wanted him to ride on a tall white horse, dignified in the sunlight, or on a chariot of war, glistening in its golden trim. But Jesus rode on an animal of peace, not of war. The crowd wanted him to grasp a sword in his hand and weigh that sword to show that he and his followers would do what they would do to the Romans. But he had an olive branch of peace in his fingers. The crowds wanted him to give inflamed and impassioned oratory to inspire them into revolution. They wanted the shouts of soldiers, but they heard only the songs of children. And Jesus? Jesus didn't say a word. Not a word as he rode into the city. Instead, he came riding on a baby donkey as king of peace, not as a warrior. You see, it seems they forgot part of the prophetic statement back in Zechariah 9.9. Let me read the whole statement. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Remember, those words of the prophet Zechariah were written some 500 years before this event. And now John says it is occurring just as it is written. Jesus was demonstrating that his kingdom was not a political kingdom. He had not come to overthrow Rome. Indeed, that was not even on his mind. Luke's account of this event reveals to us what was on his mind and heart. Clearly, he was not thinking of himself. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, we read, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So while the crowd is clamoring and cheering, Jesus is crying. When he saw the city, he wept over it. It has been pointed out that while it was a triumphal entry in one sense, in another sense it was a tearful entry. And we often overlook this fact. The Jewish scholar Edersheim clarifies that this was, quote, not with a still quiet weeping as at the grave of Lazarus when we read Jesus wept, but a loud and deep lamentation coming from his heart. Jesus knew the true superficiality of the people's hearts, and he knew that the same crowd would soon cry for his death. And as John tells us in chapter 1, verse 11, he came unto his own. And his own people received him not. They did not receive him. Because they had missed the whole point of his kingship. They wanted a political king. But Jesus was saying his kingdom was not of this world. In fact, a few chapters later we read Jesus' words to Pilate. When he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to you. But my kingdom is not of this world. And this brings us, thirdly, to the purpose of the king. The purpose of the king. And notice with me, verses 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign or miracle. The people assumed that he would use his great power to bring social and political reform. And even in our day, there are those who see Jesus as someone with a social or political message to proclaim. As one writer put it, quote, The false concept of Christ that sees him as the one who gives us material blessings is proclaimed, and people rush out to him. What men fail to understand is that they must come to Jesus because they love him, not because they can get something out of him. They must come because of who he is, not because he blesses them with the possessions of this earth. It was while we were living in Venezuela in the 60s and 70s that liberation theology was born and flourished in Latin America. And basically, liberation theology teaches that the primary mission of the church is to liberate people from unjust political, social, and economic oppression. And that's how many view the role of the church in society in our day. But they forget that Jesus made clear that he did not come to remove poverty from the world. In fact, 
You may notice back in verse 8 of this chapter, Jesus told them, the poor you always have with you. Jesus did not come to correct economic injustice or to overthrow Rome and set up a new kind of political system. Jesus came to touch the hearts and souls of people and to change society from the inside out, not from the outside in. That's the only way to bring lasting change to a society is from the inside out. In other words, he came to rule in the hearts of men and women and to do what he had to do, he had to deal with the root problem of mankind, which is sin. In fact, if you notice, some of the very next words of Jesus recorded by John. Look at verse 23 of this chapter. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Jesus speaks of being glorified in death, and he even tells us exactly how he will die. If you look at verse 32, he said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Here was the king who had not come to conquer the Roman Empire. He had instead come to conquer Satan, sin, and death. The multitude that day did not understand that they had a far greater need than liberation from the, oppression, the oppressive yoke of Rome. They needed to be liberated from the bondage of sin. Someone has said, man desires to be free, but note this. Man desires to be free on this earth so that he can move about and do as he pleases. He thinks little, if anything, about being free from the bondage of this earth. He loves the earth. He wants all of it that he can get. Houses, lands, clothes, food, sex, and recreation. Man thinks little about being held in bondage by such things. He thinks little about sin and death. He thinks little about being set free from the power of this earth and its possessions so that he can live eternally. He thinks little of spiritual freedom. And here is the key truth that they missed on that day. You cannot have Jesus as king without first having him as a lamb. On that first Palm Sunday, Jesus was the Lamb of God on his way to the slaughter that would take place in just a few days. And remember, three years earlier, John the Baptist had pointed him as, to him down by the River Jordan and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, in just a few days, the, the Lamb would take the punishment for the sins of the whole world, including your sins and my sins. As Isaiah put it in chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. In other words, we are sinners. But it says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And three days later, he would declare victory over death and the grave by rising from the dead. And 40 days later, he would ascend to heaven to take his throne as the Lamb King at the right hand of the Father. And that's where he is today. Over and over again, he is seen as the Lamb King in the book of Revelation. He is seen sitting on a throne in Revelation chapter 5. Listen to this description. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He is seen defeating the kings of the earth in Revelation 17, verse 4. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. He is seen reigning in paradise in Revelation 22, 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So on that first Palm Sunday, the multitude was greatly mistaken about the purpose of King Jesus. He had not come to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, but he had come instead to hang on a cruel cross outside the city as the Lamb King who takes away the sin of the world. But finally, consider with me the prospect of the King. The prospect of the King. What the multitudes did not know that first Palm Sunday, we can now know from Scripture. And that is the fact that a great day is coming when this very same Jesus will indeed return to this earth for the purpose of ruling and reigning from the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years in what we refer to as the Millennial Kingdom. In fact, Zechariah, the same prophet who specifically foretold that Palm Sunday entrance, and by the way, it came true exactly like he prophesied. So I believe this prophecy from Zechariah will come true just like he prophesied. Because he also foresaw a triumphal entry that is yet to take place. It is described for us in Zechariah chapter 14. Listen. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, the exact location of the triumphal entry. He will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. Then in verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And then in verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. On that first Palm Sunday, they wanted a political king. But Jesus the King had come to die as the Lamb King to take away the world. But when he comes to Jerusalem this time, he will not be on a donkey to die. He will instead come riding on a white horse to reign. The first entrance was in great humility. The second entrance will be in great power and majesty and glory. King Jesus is going to return to rule and reign and judge from Jerusalem. All world history is moving towards that goal, towards that event. And my friend, I would remind you that world history is not going to be consummated by a man-made ecological disaster. 
Nor is the world, nor is world history going to be consummated by a worldwide pandemic or plague. However, as author Joel Rosenberg wrote, wrote this, this past week, he said this, quote, In the Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ warns his disciples that pestilences or plagues will be one of the signs of the last days of human history. A time of shaking the world to wake it up and realize that Christ's return to judge and reign over the earth is increasingly imminent. Therefore, he writes, people need to wake up from spiritual slumber or rebellion, repent of their sins, and come into a holy personal relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 21. He warned them before his return, quote, There will be great earthquakes, there will be famines and plagues in many lands, and there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. My friend, is God in his great mercy giving you a wake-up call to get ready for the return of King Jesus? Are you listening to him in this time when many of our normal distractions have been removed? But it's probably quieter in the world and in our surroundings than it ever has been. Are you listening to him? How much time are you spending in his word and prayer? I firmly believe that God is giving a wake-up call to people and nations who have largely ignored him and rejected his word. He is saying, get ready, get ready to meet the king. But a proud and rebellious mankind thinks that they are in control of the events of this world and of their own lives and that they can handle things without God. The attitude is, we don't need God. We are masters of our own fate. But we are quickly learning that we are not masters of our own fate. God's Word assures us that the sovereign God is in control of the events of this world. And world history is fast moving towards the day when history will be consummated by the coming of King Jesus. That great day is described in Revelation chapter 19. Listen carefully to the description. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name of which, by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But my friend, until that day, King Jesus wants to rule and reign in your life and my life each and every day that he gives us here on this earth. It tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, it reminds us of this. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, which is Lord, so that at the name of Jesus, 
or at the name given to Jesus, Lord, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord or King to the glory of God the Father. We all have a choice to make. We can bow before him today voluntarily as our king. Or someday we will bow before him involuntarily as our judge. Romans 10.9 assures us, if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, he is king, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My friend, have you confessed Jesus as your savior? by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in his death for you on that cross and thus been born into his kingdom? Have you bowed to his sovereign rule in your life? Because he wants to be both your savior and your sovereign king. If you've never settled this issue, I would urge you to do so today before it is too late. If you do, you will be prepared to behold your king when he comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the reminder that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, he was on his way to the cross as the Lamb King to die there and pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven and have the gift of eternal life. And we praise you that three days later he conquered death and the grave, and now he is seated at your right hand, And he is working out his sovereign purpose on planet Earth. And Father, we anticipate the day when he will return in great power and glory to rule and reign on this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. And until that day, may he rule in our hearts and lives. We pray in his precious and powerful name. Amen.